Mr. Branton Monroe, how are we, sir? I'm well, Matt. How are you? All good, all good. I'm in the throes and the thick of lots of builders, and there might be a little bit of banging um, going on around here of the wrong sort. You talked about sentiment. So there's no getting away from sentiment in any resources sector, and uranium is no different. But there is a lot of value to positioning yourself in front of the next sentiment switch. And uranium's a great example with that. You know, we saw the sentiment switch. We saw a big sentiment switch with uh, the pandemic. And then we saw another sentiment switch at the end of 2020, I think it was, when different uranium companies really moved very substantially on the back of nothing more than sentiment. Now, we now know what that sentiment was driven by, and that was rumours emerging at the time that there would be a new market player, which ultimately emerged as Sput. So it was well-founded sentiment switches. Uh, and I can remember in August 2021, sentiment was down, people were down in the dumps, and you and I had the conversation saying, this is like taking candy off a baby because it's so obvious what Sput's going to do. I don't think I was optimistic enough in terms of what Sput ultimately did, but the point was that sentiment was down, which created a fabulous buying opportunity on all, certainly when the pandemic had knocked share prices dramatically. And then when people were down in the dumps in August 2021, a mere weeks before the Sput ATM machine kicked in and started that flywheel that had a dramatic effect on equities. So it's about positioning in front of sentiment. Uh, what we've learned, certainly in our share price, in the Bannerman share price, is for any substantive investors, so that's institutional, professional, high net worth, and even substantial retail investors, um, it can be pretty hard to catch sentiment once it starts running. Uh, and that's a message that many of the institutions remember from the end of 2020 and equally that sort of August, September 2021 period. So where are we now? Sentiment's pretty terrible. Even like we're recording now on Thursday, the 30th of March, and we've had three decent days on ASX. But my experience down here is investors are still very much looking over their shoulder. They're not too sure if they're going to get belted again from North America next week. And really, it's going to take a good couple of weeks of more or less green days or more green days than red days over the next two to three weeks, I think, before uh, we're going to have a, a broader sense of confidence that it's bottomed. And maybe it hasn't bottomed. Let me draw a parallel of sorts with July, August 2021. So the time when we said this is like taking candy off a baby. Um, what we had there was we had, you know, a, a pretty predictable, you didn't have to be any industry thought leader to understand that SPUT was going to have quite an effect on the sector and that would flow into equities. We had a very a generally supportive equity environment. So it wasn't about uranium doing something different to what other equities were doing. It was just about giving uranium sector an opportunity to shine amongst an overall positive resource sector equities environment.
Now, if we if we're talking about you know the Canadians love to say you skate to where the puck is going, not where the puck where you can see the puck at the moment. So, if you're anticipating how to position for when sentiment returns broadly in the market, the parallel that we've got with August 21, it might not be as obvious because you can't nail it down to a single market participant like Sput is. But what we are seeing is a broadening of the funnel into which generalist, inve uh, generalist investor equities can pour into tiny little stocks, which is what the uranium sector is. Even the ones that we think are quite big are still tiny little stocks. You know, you take the couple of majors out of the sector and you've got single figure billions globally for all of the listed uranium stocks in the world. So it's still a tiny little sector. But we've now got four different ETF indices that are traded on multiple bourses. So if you look at URNM, for example, that's now the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF. Um, it's obviously, there's a Sprott listing in North America. Uh, you've got a listing that BetaShares has in Australia. You've got a listing in the UK. You've got a listing across a few different bourses in Europe. You've then got the Sprott Junior Uranium Miners ETF. Uh, you've got Hura, which was there, URA, which was there. Um, and what this new emerging universe of ETFs are doing is bigger players can throw five or 10 million into the mix to get exposure to the uranium miners thematic very easily. And that five or 10 million kind of it starts at the funnel here and then gets squeezed into this small sector. And when you've got a whole bunch of generalist investors doing that more or less all at once, which is what I anticipate when we see the next sentiment shift, that's going to have quite profound effects in terms of the demand creation, the robotic, non-discretionary yeah. demand creation at a time when, by definition, the sentiment switched. So you're going to have a bunch of genuine investors, thinking investors, non-robotic investors who are also on the, on the buy. They're also on the bid. And if it comes at a time when there's a distinct sentiment shift, when most people agree that we're now in an upswing, um, then we'll be back to scenarios that we had, you know, in the middle of August 2021, when I can remember looking at our screen and seeing a couple of million shares on the entire offer and like 15, 16, 17 million shares in total on the bid, you know, dramatically outweighed uh, disproportionate bid versus offer spreads. Um, now you put robotic buying onto that, um, including when you've got market makers on you know, OTC needing to cross out their, their shorts on the ASX and so forth. Um, that's the sort of sentiment shift that you can position for. Um, as you said, uh, you know, trying to pick bottoms is a dangerous activity. Um, but you can layer in and be ready for when the uh, when that sentiment shift takes place, because you don't want to be you don't want to be uh, underweight or out of the game and on that bid side competing with all of the other investors and the robots uh, via the ETFs at the same time, because then it's just too hard to climb in.
Uh, let's let's talk about some, remind people about some of the the, the drivers for for sentiment going forward. Like, for, for, first thing I'd go to is obviously governments around the world. You know, we we've seen in the last couple, of, well, certainly last well since Russia Ukraine situation, energy security high on the agenda. It was kind of moving that way, but that accelerated things. You know, we're moving towards this carbon neutral environment, and I think the one thing about carbon neutral targets. When governments set targets which are 30, 40 years out, people go, eh, very far away. I, I'm, I'm not, not going to pay too much attention to that, right? That, that's the kind of initial reaction there. But the reality is kind of like what we're seeing in the battery spaces. What you don't realize is you've got these huge industrial complexes, these huge movements and, and levers, levers being pulled, um, which which say we've, we've, we've started the process and this thing's cranking into action and there's a kind of, it kind of reaches its kind of um, optimum speed slowly at, at first, but once it's there, it's kind of hard, it's hard to stop. So in terms of that kind of those carbon neutral um, targets and that kind of industrial complex behind it, sort of driving those things, because you know, you need governments to get behind either uh, reactor extensions or new builds or new technology and make it easier with whether whether it be a sort of a you know a, a credit or tax and tax incentive environment for these things to move forward. And we again with Russia, we've seen, you know, 40% of the of the enriched uranium market. What do people do about that? So what let's let's talk about, you know, this the, the these kind of carbon neutral um, targets that are set out? Because I think that's important for beginners to understand. Well there's two forms. There's the government mandated which is a fairly blunt instrument. Um, there are very few highly effective uh, trading schemes uh, that uh, make those government mandated approaches uh, a sufficient incentive right now for the reasons that you've described as well. They're a little bit too distillate in terms of when they bite. But then I think what's really important for particularly for nuclear energy is the voluntary schemes that large industrial companies are entering into. Um, now, they're, they're obviously voluntary in anticipation of government mandated. Uh, there aren't too many that are operating purely as charities, although there are some that have got significant consumer facing businesses that are looking to position themselves favourably in front of those consumers. But I still believe by and large, it's companies seeking a competitive advantage in anticipation of those blunt instruments starting to become used in a blunt way at some point in the future. Now, the reason why they're important is unlike the government mandated political processes, when a company does this, as long as they're not in a dumb place like Australia that has a law against nuclear power, they will use the most effective way of decarbonising. And in many instances today, that's nuclear energy. But I can tell you going forward, when it comes to a period of time when we've got multiple small modular reactors available that can service different kind of niche applications, we'll see a very substantial uptake and a very rapid uptake. And I've just been doing some work inside the WNA, the World Nuclear Association's demand subgroup. We, we Six of us got together as a um, as a subcommittee to look at SMRs, and we presented those results last night to the broader committee. 
And I mean, it's dramatic. It's dramatic. We just took a, a handful of different applications and did some analysis behind those. And, uh, you know, you can look forward to seeing those results a little bit later in the year when it comes out in the report. Uh, but it's very realistic to think that in the early 2030s, we're going to see a major demand pull from small modular reactors. And they will be uh, predominantly driven, I believe, by commercial voluntary or semi-voluntary commitments to decarbonisation. And it's not just to decarbonise an electricity source. So it's not just a mine that says, well, we'd better get our carbon footprint down because you know, we're going to have to be serving a smaller carbon footprint down the supply chain for our end users. Uh, it's industrial heating. You know, a huge amount of fossil fuels is used to simply make stuff hot in the making of other stuff. Um, and nuclear is incredibly effective in industrial heating. Um, there's a number of chemicals processes ranging from smelters down to electrochemical processes uh, that are perfectly served or will be perfectly served by more flexible small modular reactors with effectively zero carbon input. Even some of the uh, existing fossil fuel applications, they're looking to reduce the carbon footprint of their carbon-based fuels. So if you look at grey hydrogen as a perfect example, uh, about between 30 and 35% of the carbon footprint of grey hydrogen is actually the gas consumed in the process of turning the gas into hydrogen. In other words, it's a gas that's used for the energy of the process. So it's a real easy win to take an SMR or some other nuclear form of energy and use 100% of the gas for turning gas into hydrogen and use the nuclear for the energy that's required for that process. And that's, you know, all of a sudden that carbon footprint goes down by as much as a third. So that's where decarbonisation will have such a big input. And then you extrapolate a little bit further, move, move say 20 years down the track, and you start to look at very hard to abate areas. Um, and that's again where nuclear can have a big, big impact at a time when we anticipate that storage and firming is going to be off the scale expensive, which is then going to have a corresponding impact on the effectiveness of intermittent renewables for industrial applications. You know, people, some people will get used to, you know, running their washing machines only when the sun's shining and, and all of that. But when it comes to industrial applications, they can't withstand that lack of efficiency. And so they'll look for baseload 24-7 zero carbon alternatives. And there's only two at the moment and one's hydro. So if you don't live near one of those, you bring in an SMR and you park it in your car park. You make it okay. You make it. You make a great, great point and a great, a great argument for that. But I think one of the things that you, you in there, in case people missed that component in there, which is this isn't just about carbon neutral. Nuclear also asks the question around cost. Okay, that's a big deal at the moment. It has been for the last year a really, really big deal. So not only is it going to deal with carbon neutral, which is a kind of, it's a nice new. You know, I'm going to say I'm going to say fad for for politicians because they they flip and. They're like butterflies that flip from one thing to the next, you know, whatever's going to win them votes or, you know, keep them in power. But um, I, I think that the carbon neutral thing, which we're all working towards, you know, a, across all industries, you know, nuclear helps deliver that. But the cost component is the thing that most normal people care about because it's hurting them in the pockets. It's like being able to afford 
the heating for the house. Well, it's make, oh, we're making choices. I can heat the house or I can eat little things, or I can pay the mortgage, or I can keep my car, which, I've, which I'm which i paying, whatever you're paying each month. So the, nuclear delivers on two fronts there. The and, and that kind of brings us nicely onto this kind of electrification of everything. Again, I'm, I'm going to do the simple version for, for the new, newbies, and you, you can maybe di dive into the detail here. Electric electrification of everything the power for all of these lovely electric cars that we're being told that we must must uh, start using um by 2030 over here um there's no point in you know, fueling that with coal-powered fire stations there's no point you know fueling that from a source which you know whether whatever renewable which may not work in winter it may not work if there's a drought and i'm talking globally here not in your own individual countries so we we Nuclear again delivers on the power front if we are going to electrify everything, if this battery revolution of ours is taking over, which, which it seems to be. So, um, did, did you did you guys sort of cover that and talk about you know that narrative? Um, not specifically. We we were much more quantitative at this point. That narrative will come in when it comes to writing up the report. Um, I mean, EVs are an, is a great example. There is a benefit from taking petrol or diesel that's sort of excreted into the street where people are driving their prams and all of that and taking it to a coal-fired power station that's centrally located. So there is a benefit, but it's pretty insignificant. The real benefits with EV and the only benefit that can justify the enormous additional materials use for an EV versus an internal combustion engine is if you're getting the electricity from a carbon-free source such as nuclear or hydro. Um, but I want to made, make another point about cost because cost has two elements. There's the absolute cost, but for business and industry, there's a reliability of cost because uh, you want to plan, like particularly if it's uh, large industrial applications and smelters and so on a lot of the time these are 20 to 30 year investments that are being made and it's very hard to make those investments if you're wondering what the cost is going to be uh, from year to year or from month to month or from day to day and that's where we're seeing a totally unrecognized secondary cost of over-reliance on intermittent renewables it's introducing a volatility and a variability into energy pricing that will ultimately cost economic growth in a very substantial way. So you compare that to an SMR, a number of the SMR designs, they leave the factory preloaded for as much as 20 years of power, or even some of them are 12 years of power before they need to be replaced. So that cost is locked down for 12 years consistent that is the cost so you can uh, industry can make long-term decisions about what their at least the energy component of their cost structure is going to be that's pro economic development rather than volatility and intermittency and unanswered questions about what price the mystical firming or the mystical storage is going to be that's very anti-economic growth those things are barely even being talked about, but it's, uh, you know, we've seen the demonstration of that 
led by, by geopolitics in Europe, but the effects that we've had in Europe, the world had better get used to it because that's what's coming down the barrel as a result of the over-reliance on the virtues of intermittent energy. Yeah, and, and I think we've seen we've seen Germany last year with the in, in, industry having to shut down energy costs, um, you know, were prohibitive in, in the sense that they couldn't make money if they if they produced. Um, I saw it in Cape Town or we saw it in Cape Town uh, with their with their various load shedding or blackouts. Um, it, you know, it's it's just not a sensible way to go forward. So, uh, but but what I do think is that politicians have accepted that, or maybe they've always known it, but now accepting it as part of their their conversations and narrative that nuclear is the solution for that. So costs on both fronts, as, as you say. Um, I, I guess they kind of um, one of the other kind of big factors here that we want to talk about is the big elephant um, in the room, which is the, is the importance of China and um, you know you know its its effect in the marketplace. So, w w do you think? Sorry, do you think the 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 Chinese component is still as relevant today as it was, say, a year ago, given this kind of switch switch up from the West? Oh, no question, no question. So, last time I did the numbers. Uh, the, the nuclear demand growth is taking place 73% in China. So China represents 73%, as we stand today, of the new nuclear demand. Um, and it'll be inside this decade that they become the largest single market. They surpass the US. Now, the way that China can play a role is now very different. You know, the... Uh, in the time that we've been talking, Matt, uh, for example, uh, CGN took a 19.9% interest in fission. You know, that's probably going back to 2016, I'm, I'm going to guess. Um, now, you won't see that again uh, because of current geopolitics. You know, unless something dramatic happens and the West and China kiss and make up, uh, that's not going to be possible. So you won't see... Uh, material investment from China into markets like Australia and Canada, or it certainly won't see it into the US. Um, I think you'll continue to see it into Kazakhstan, and I think you'll see all new opportunities in Kazakhstan carved up between Russia and China, um, and uh, Western operators will be working hard to make sure that they can protect their existing uh, interests there. And so that means China's real focus, as we've talked about many times, will be on trying to grow their domestic foundations or their domestic baseline in uranium, and they're struggling there, uh, or looking to places where they can play, where they can own production, where they can own ore bodies, where they can own uranium. Um, relevant in Namibia, relevant in newcomer nations where China's prepared to take a long-term view because it takes an awful long time to get uranium developed in a brand new country. Um, and then relevant in, uh, potentially relevant in some of the other former CIS countries, um, you know, and expand that to Mongolia, for example, uh, where they'd be also looking to, to try and um, promote and develop new ore bodies that they can access into the longer term. Do you think, what do you think that's going to do in terms of um, international relations? Obviously, I think, yeah, fair to say that US-China have had sort of a, a bit of a turgid time of the last 
you know, for well, since, since sort of Trump started being a little bit combative that direction, I think China's flexing its muscles and hanging out with Russia a little bit more, and you know, India getting in on the action here. You know, where there's a there's a little bit of um, a little bit of posturing from, from from China. Do you think, in the context of nuclear and the context of the availability of readily available uranium producers? Do you think that kind of, you know, is going to create even more tensions? Because energy security is such a big deal, right? The US have latched on to this. They've worked out they don't actually have much uranium in country. They're going to need to make friends with Canada. They're not really, they don't really hang out in, in Africa, maybe a little bit more than they used to. But um, we, we, we've kind of, we're moving towards a, a very tense period where, securing energy um, is going to be, you know, very, very difficult, you know, for all the, you know, the, you know not everyone can, can have everything all of the time. So there'll, there'll be, have to be some friendships created. There's going to be some, you know, tense um, competition, shall we say. Um, and maybe that would be good for the uranium industry, or certainly, you know, if you're talking about public market companies, maybe that, 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 that's good. And we go, well, you know, that's what we care about as investors. But what do, what do, you, what do you think it does for the, for the whole, uh, you know, energy complex and, and nuclear energy complex specifically? So it, it, let's compare it to most battery minerals where China yeah. has a dramatic advantage. So rare earth being a great example where... Uh, the sort of uh, midstream processing of rare earths, China has an absolute stranglehold. So even the small amount of rare earths that gets uh, mined elsewhere in the world, it still has to go to China for midstream processing. And then, you know, advanced chemicals are then sent back to South Korea or Japan or the US. Um, now, you compare nuclear to that, and the West has still got a great advantage against China. It's a great balancing against China. And, and in reality, it's there's three parties at play. There's Russia, there's China and the West. So that's a great thing. You know, that's a great thing for the expansion of nuclear power. Um, it's a great thing for developed countries who can use nuclear power. You know, for us as people, that's a great thing. Um, but it's also a good thing in, for investors because uh, it's a little bit like the boots on the other foot. And China doesn't want to be at the disadvantage that they've managed to put the rest of the world at with rare earths and lithium and a number of the other critical minerals and battery minerals. And they've seen such an incredibly strong strategic, geostrategic position that they're in because they've managed to navigate themselves into dominating these industries uh, that I think informs them as to the cost of having the shoe on the other foot and being on the other side of that equation. Uh, so I think they're just getting started in terms of uranium and um, I, I expect that they won't achieve an awful lot domestically. They're working hard on it. They're, you know, they're drilling some incredibly deep holes to try and find more uranium. And so you can expect them to become more aggressive. And um, they will want to emulate the enormous success they've had with photovoltaic panels, right? The PV panels, they now absolutely dominate. They've squeezed the German players out of the market. They've squeezed the others out of the market and they've all gone bankrupt. 
So they're almost, you know, they're pretty close to a monopolist when it comes to accessible and cheap uh, solar panels now. That gives them a position that they'll redeploy into nuclear and you'll start seeing them playing a, a more balanced role in the uh, nuclear export industry now that they've got their Hualong ones rolling off the, uh, so to speak, rolling off the um, factory floor. Um, you know, the, the first of a kind Hualong one built in seven years. Like That is pretty spectacular. That is absolutely awesome. And CNNC have now set the target for um, total completion in, in four years. So they they believe in the next few years they'll be able to build Hualong ones, not in six years, not in five years, but in four years. Um, once they're operating that effectively, uh, you'll see significant export markets open up for them. But again, they need the uranium for that. So I think their their impact will continue to be dramatic. It's, it's kind of fascinating to me is, it, is that kind of, you know, that whole supply chain between China and Russia. I mean, both China and Russia have their own reactor technologies and they are, you know, selling it to, you know, here, here wants it. Um, they, you know, Russia's clearly advanced on the enrichment, enrichment side and a real powerhouse um, there. They've got the relationship with Kazakhstan, I think is the general feeling, whether they do or whether they don't. I think there's, there's a sense that there's there's a lot of control there um and you've kind of got china who've kind of got the free reign because they're playing the diplomat able to kind of bounce in you know obviously namibia it's, it, it holds a lot of um uranium there um and it's got the power the balance sheet the cash <laughs> available to go and you know pick stuff up while people are sort of you know twiddling the thumbs and working out what to do next on a on a um company level so you know because the us is saying we're offering incentives where china's going well go get it get, secure that now so i think that's what i mean about that kind of that, that kind of competitive tension and that kind of supply chain ownership it it, it will put them at, put the russia china relationship in a very strong position um whilst the west is still it's it's moving things along at a much faster rate than you know we've seen in a long 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 time but is there going to be, a, do we feel that there's going to be a moment where this kind of Russia, China, India and others versus US and friends uh, where you think, well, the US and the West has got to just go. They've got to go now. Like talking about 150 million here and 150 million there is neither here nor there. What else is what? What else do, do, would you like to see coming out of the West? Kind of healthy industry. I'm talking about uranium equities here, um, specifically. It's small, but we think important. When when does everyone catch on to that in the West? Well, I don't have a lot of faith that they will be able to adequately play the game. Um, the the West has, in my view, responded inadequately to the monopolistic. Uh, position that China's got itself in on other critical minerals. Um, there's no better example than Australia. You know, we're so privileged with the vast quantities of minerals that we've got in Australia. And not only the fact that they're there, but all of the human capital and the technologies associated with our mining industry to be able to extract. You know, we, we really genuinely are for a tiny, tiny little country of 26 million people we're a world leader in mining. And we've got this enormous 
outsized role to play in balancing these geopolitical tensions and the government's asleep at the wheel. And it's not only the current Labor government, like successive governments have just failed fundamentally to understand that. And sure, it's being rubbed in their nose a bit now because of Taiwan and because of geopolitics and all of this, but they, they just don't know how to respond. They don't have a clue. Um, and they don't have the levers that a China or a Russia have got because they're not autocratic leadership. Um, the US has suddenly lurched into action with the Inflation Reduction Act and you know throwing big sums of money. They've got multiple departments that are all running around. Like I think the department that's in charge of figuring out heavy rare earths have got 60 people in it. Now, all of this stuff. But I don't I don't see that filtering into an adequate response to China's um, voracious appetite that they will have in uranium. And I think what's more likely to happen is the West will just say, well, lucky we've got Canada and lucky there's a fair bit of that in Australia if they ever, you know, figure out their privileged stance on banning uranium. Um, and we'll just be happy with that. You know, they've got a short-term bump in the road because they've got to wean themselves off Russian enrichment and all of that. So I don't, personally, I don't think the mindset is to expect any help from the West, unfortunately. What they really should be doing is they should be carving off a handful of billions of dollars and saying, right, we're going to create a new export credit agency. And as long as your uranium only goes to these countries, you can have this easy credit, take the credit, go and mine the stuff. Let's keep that away from our adversaries. But they, they won't really think like that. So um, instead, you'll have listed companies outside of the US who will be saying, well, you know, we're, we're struggling for finance. It's not that easy out there. Uh, we'll take it from where we can get it. And that's why Rio sold Rossing to the Chinese. That's why Langer Heinrich has a 25% CNNC shareholding. That's originally why CGN was able to acquire 19.9% then of Fission and so on and so on and so on. So these down markets are when, uh, you know, actors like China are able to really rub their hands and say, well, these capitalists have now backed themselves into this corner. They're going through one of these little capitalist um, short-term bear markets. We've got a 50 to 100 year view. This is the time when we go shopping. You know, we, we've talked a lot over the you know, past few years about the fact that, you know, SMRs, you know, there will be more SMRs to, to um, deploy. There is nuclear is being accepted uh, uh, globally. There is going to be a different flow to that supply, I suspect. Um, which, will, which will make life really, really interesting and make for a very competitive environment, make it for a very competitive pricing environment. And that's because I think some countries, once they go, I'm talking about like Middle East, for instance, they'll outbid anyone. That, you know, they, they, they will win the bidding competition. That'll make things really quite tense. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what that does um, for pricing over the next sort of five years or so. Um, just just on this, we, we, and, and, and talking, talking as, as you did, um, about the inflow of, of investment, I think sort of 
we're seeing a lot more just broadly in the commodities space, a lot more generalist investors getting interested. You know, I said to you at the beginning, you know, we've had this inflow of people into the app. You know, 46,500 people is, is not nothing here. And they are um, intrigued by this space. They're intrigued by this metal super cycle. They're intrigued by the energy security issues. They're intrigued by, you know, how they can make money, right? So um, they're, they're, everyone's looking. And, you know, they may not be placing bets right now, but they're definitely looking, trying to work out what this vocabulary and what this conversation, what this narrative, what games are played before they place their bets. So what, what do you think the impact of generalist investors and speculators is going to be on the space? So first of all, it's going to come when we have this return to sentiment and when they come into the space with confidence, uh, you will see an impact on further tightening of uranium, physical uranium availability, because they've got the choice of split, they've got the choice of yellow cake. Um, Middle Eastern money can come in through ANU Energy. That's the, um, the split equivalent that's on the Astana International Financial Centre in Kazakhstan. And there's even a new AMC, which is um, uh, accredited market certificate, which is a type of unit type investment in uh, Switzerland, the uh, Uriinvest Uranium AMC, something like that. But anyway, we can we can drop it in percent um, if it hasn't been commented on already. And that's Curzon, which is one of the more entrepreneurial trading groups who are advising that. And you'll see more pop up over time. So there's four major physical investment funds that generalist investors in various jurisdictions around the world, together with Yellow Cakes, the fourth, can now invest into. So that's the physical side of things. We talked before about the impact that generalist investors can have on equities, both through ETFs and the specialist uranium funds, you know, your Segra capitals of this world, um, and also just directly into, into equities. You know, there's a lot of generalists, they won't go into an ETF, they'll pick up a newsletter writer or something and follow a model portfolio and that's their way of constructing their own ETF, but they're controlling it themselves and they've, they've got their hands over it and it sort of feels more exciting, I suppose. Uh, and there's an awful lot of generalist money out there and there's an awful dearth and lack of uranium companies to invest in, particularly given that generalist investors by nature tend to be a bit more conservative. So they're less likely to come in and start punting on the latest little IPO or backdoor listing or reverse takeover that's come into the sector. They're going to start at producers, obviously, so your Kamikos and um, potentially your Kazatomproms if they can get their head around Kazakhstan. Then they'll probably move into the restarts and then they'll move into the development plays uh, first before they start sort of punting the exploration plays and so on. So it won't be quite that the rising tide lifts all boats equally. But if you do see those flow of funds and if you see the velocity of money in that way, you'll pretty much see everything that's capable of holding water in the harbour um, go up to some degree, I would say. Yeah, interesting times. It'd be interesting to see, like I said earlier in the conversation, I think when it moves, it'll move quickly. Just by sheer dint of the volume trying to get, squeeze its way through this hose pipe at <laughs> the other side it, it's it's um yes yeah, exciting like i i think some some of some of the conversations of two years ago of um 
you know, how quickly this thing would move. I, I thought we were insane at the time because the, the drivers weren't there. You know, Spit wasn't around for crying out loud. None, none of none of these ETS were around. Um, and we didn't hadn't had the kind of, you know, the Russia situation yet. So, but, but I now think those drivers are there. And I, I do see um, going when it goes, it'll go quickly. And, and, and I'm not one for promotional talk or, you know, excitable talk. I'm, I'm more of a, a realist on, on these things. And I think that um, that's important for everyone to kind of keep a level head, but it, 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 it kind of feels a little bit better um, now. Well, it, it won't matter soon. Here's, here's the other bit of data I got yesterday. Did you, did you see that Goldman's report on uh, AI? Uh-huh. No, no, I've seen a couple of references to it. So we're all doomed. So we're all doomed. Like lawyers, thank God you got out of it. Forty-four percent of of lawyers will be replaced by AI. Forty-six percent of administrative functions will be replaced by AI. Architects, journalists, we're all all the clever people are doomed. What you need to be, you need to be as a plumber, construction, builder, electrician. That's what we're going back to. We're literally doing a. Volte fast, the value will be in the guys who know how to make stuff. Kind of like that. Back to the day of the guilds. I like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. I don't know anyway. whether you're a carpenter or a stonemason. I'm probably a bit of a weakling for being a stonemason, so I think carpenter might be better. I like wood. Stonemason, I heard. Stonemason is, uh, I think, where I'd be. I'd lo- I'd lo- love love those guys and what they can do um right we better wrap it up um one because i've got someone to speak to in about eight minutes uh and two because what a fulsome just brilliant session that's our best session for like weeks weeks and weeks so good and i appreciate everything you bring into the table um so we'll see you next week great okay matt that was good fun thank you